Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Alrighty there, Don. You can kill that nonsense. Oh, there it goes. It's dead. Hello! BC Radio Live. Yes, that's the show we're on. Uh, I, I got to remember because we've been we've been all over the place lately. We've been doing lots of interviews because a lot of these showbiz types are only available in the day. So we've been doing them on Blog Talk Radio Live in the afternoon or or special segments of Glosslip as well. Tonight, I'm Eric Olson, by the way, on BC Radio Live, the flagship show of the Blog Critics Channel of Blog Talk Radio. We have me. Myself and I. Oh, and also Don Olson, who is hosting for us in lieu of Philip Wynn. He is off doing some summary things or camp or something with children or other such nonsense. And we have the return of Lisa McKay. Lisa, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Eric. How are you? It's been a while. It really has. I was gone, then you were gone. So you got to tell us about your vacation. You were you were oh. off on the what the vineyard. We were on Martha's Vineyard for a week. Yes, we were, and we had a grand time. Nice weather. Uh, it only rained at night, which is what you want it to do when you're on vacation. And we we ate, we drank, we relaxed, and I actually read two entire books from cover to cover and started a third. Wow, you're like Evelyn Wood. It's just unprecedented. It really is. I never get a chance to do that when I'm home. Never, ever. So that's just a huge luxury. I really totally understand. As, as Don knows, I, I, I'm always, at least you know, usually anyway, am in the process of reading a book. But, I mean, that's like a page here, a page there. I mean, I'm, I've been on a book. I, it's probably in a month now. It's really interesting. It's it's one of these. It's kind of requires a lot of concentration. Uh, it's about the it's about England in the 17th and 18th century. Well, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries when uh, kind of the age of reason and how the changes in how the people and and obviously primarily the intellectuals and philosophers and writers and whatnot viewed the body versus the soul and and how that changed their their world view so it brings in all kinds of interesting things you know literally uh physiology and and biology but but also you know religion and philosophy and oh. kind of all how all this stuff comes together and anyway you can imagine it's 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 kind of dense and i mean i have to just kind of back up every time you know, unless I have at least a half hour or so, I got to back up to remember where I am. Anyway, the point is, after a month, I'm only like halfway through the book, so I, I can really yeah. understand the the luxury. So, what did you read? Um, actually, I read uh, I read a book called The King of Bollywood, which is a biography of Shahrukh Khan, who is a, a Muslim actor uh, who's very popular in in Hindi cinema. Uh, and it was interesting because it was really sort of an overview of, of Bollywood in general. And I happen to be a, a fan of, of Indian cinema, so that was really fun to read. And then I read something really interesting, which was uh, a book by Michael Pollan, who writes for the New York Times, called In Defense of Food. And that was essentially about the uh, 
the whole food movement and how important it is for the health of ourselves and the, and the planet to sort of not eat crap anymore. And I'm I'm trying really hard not to eat crap anymore. So I, I really kind of found that very interesting. And then I started a uh, kind of a sci-fi fantasy thing called The Scar, uh, which I'm I'm still reading. And of course, now that I'm home, that's probably going to grind through. <laughs> So we'll, well see. Well, I'm about maybe a fifth of the way through that now, and it's pretty thick. Uh, it's fascinating, and you know, we'll see how it goes. Well, that is very interesting. Those are certainly eclectic works. Yeah, you, when you're talking about the not eating crap movement, it reminded me that we had. Uh, I, I don't remember if you were with us or not. We spoke with uh, Anne Velisis, who was yes, the author I was here that night. Kitchen literacy. Yeah, she. Yep. That was a really interesting talk, and I learned. Yeah. Quite it's a lot from that. It's all very related, and it's a pretty hot topic right now too. Sure. Um, and you know, I, I think our 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 style of eating at home is is pretty pretty healthy as a rule. But uh, there are just you know there are a lot of things to think about in terms of you know factory raised meat and and all sorts of things, and you know the energy costs involved in getting you know produce from California to Connecticut where I eat it. And all sorts of stuff. Sure, it's very interesting. It ties in, like you say, it's it's a very large, holistic topic. It ties into the whole uh, energy movement, clean energy movement, sustainability, um, local localism, uh, and uh, you know, there's a lot of factors to it. And it's it's interesting, and and to me anyway, a lot of it makes uh, you know an awful lot of sense. Not the yeah. least of which is local stuff tends to taste better. Absolutely, and of course they have to do less to it to keep it fresh, so it's better for you on any number of levels. Very interesting. Don, how are you? I am super fantastico. How are you? I'm swell. What have you been doing today, Don? Um, well, you know, I've been doing a little uh, domestic uh, maintenance. Uh, I helped you host your show. Oh, I yeah. beat down to the kids a few times. And now I'm reading about a uh, prostitute uh, operation on wheels, and I'm thinking that's pretty ingenious. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, so if you don't have an address, you know, a fixed no, address. No, it is a movable uh, operation. It's a, it's a bus. They picks up John, and you pay a certain amount of money, and you get a little, uh, you know, service in return. It, it, but, you know, that, that is not part of the topic of tonight's conversation. I just Harder to was reading read. that, and I thought... Wow, that sounds like a like a tour bus for rock stars, you know, except it's free. So very, very wise. Who is our first guest this evening? Because we we don't have any calls yet, and I'm wondering what I should be looking for. Uh, well, I the the way it was originally set up, we a way back uh, we had four guests scheduled, so we were on the 15 minute schedule. Then uh, one of them dropped by the wayside, refusing to call from Israel at three in the morning. How dare they! Uh, that was the iMedics thing, and, and I, I had forgotten that that was long since canceled. They just weren't going to get up at 3 in the morning to talk to us, and it's probably for the best. So then um, uh, we had another one drop out. I just never heard back. We had a band scheduled, and, and that was had been scheduled long, long ago. You know, I'm, I'm totally into and totally support the the scheduling as far in advance as is reasonable, 
and it makes things a lot easier. And certainly today we saw the other side of it. We we literally had Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, uh, confirmed, not exaggerating, 45 minutes before the interview. And, I mean, I didn't even know anything about it an hour before. So, uh, you know, we saw that side of it. But there is a downside to scheduling stuff way in advance, you know, like months, is uh, people forget about it, things change, uh, you know. Uh, so there's a lot to be said for the immediacy of, of some of these things we've been doing on, on weekdays. And, and, again, those are because people either can't wait to get into our, our, our Wednesday night or, or Don's Sunday night schedule because we are booked a month, six weeks out for the most part. And they got something going on right here and now, or within the next, you know, days or week, that kind of thing. So uh, anyway, we're down to two guests, which is really quite a luxury because, you know, look, we can talk. There's no problem there. We can we can just chat away. And uh, hopefully, uh, I, I was trying to get a hold of our first guest and, and encourage her to call in a little earlier than the scheduled 9:15. We'll see if she did get the message. Uh, so far, it does not appear so. But anyway, I'm very, very excited about both of our sets of guests. We actually have three people, but kind of two sets. First is Katie, and I'm assuming we're, we have the French pronunciation. She'll tell me if I'm wrong. Chevigny, Chevigny, C-H-E-V-I-G-N-Y. And she's the director of a new PBS documentary, Election Day. And I actually was just watching it. I, I saw almost an hour of it. It's, it's about an hour and a half long. So I saw a lot of it. And it is extremely powerful. It's really engrossing. That's why I called in so late, Don and Lisa, because I was watching this thing. And I, I didn't want to turn it off. I wanted to see what was going to happen. And it's really, really fascinating. It'll be airing on July 1st on PBS. And what she did is uh, she sent, I think it was 11 crews to 11 sites uh, all over the country from really remote uh, South Dakota and Wisconsin to to uh, urban settings, St. Louis and um, I think Shaker Heights and Cincinnati, both in Ohio, and, and several more settings all over the country. One was Florida, I recall, and uh, and just documented – there's no uh, narrator. Uh, you know, you're just following what's going on in each of these locations on Election Day, 2004. And of course, that was the the uh, the Kerry Bush campaign. There was local things going on uh, also, of course, in all these various jurisdictions. And and it's funny to see. And there's a Chicago one. You're following it from the perspective of a of a Republican in Chicago, so he feels greatly outnumbered. But it's funny to see the uh, Obama uh, uh, posters by the polling station for 04, but of course not for president. He was running for the Senate then. And and by golly, he won. So that was neat to see. But yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And it's really just, it's not so much about the election itself or the results of the election. It's about the voting process and what what people go through and the complications and what what's in their mind and first time voters and you know really really veteran voters and people who are who are employed in the process poll watchers and whatnot uh, election officials and it's really really fascinating stuff so I'm I'm very much looking forward to speaking with her any minute now that's Katie and then uh, coming up in about a half hour or so and again I, I asked them if they wanted to to uh, start a little bit early, but not sure if they got the message. A uh, really interesting book. Uh, as, as is usual, I wasn't able to literally sit down and read it cover to cover, but I always do try to 
do a pretty good job of, of skimming through these books of, of authors we cover, and that's always really interesting. I have this pile right here to my left, and, and it's the, the books by people we've had on the show who I really liked and want to read their book. <laughs> but it keeps piling up. It keeps getting higher and higher because I'm you know, not finding I, – I have no time to go backwards. I have to keep looking forwards. But um, this one is called Stupid Wars, A Citizen's Guide to Botched Putches, Failed Coups, Inane Invasions, and Ridiculous Revolutions. And that subtitle is actually a pretty good characterization of the style. It's really wit, wittily written. It's really funny, uh, you know, disturbing as well. And they chronicle some of the, the, the most ridiculous or, or most poorly planned and stupid, frankly, uh, wars in history. And they're, they're pretty much just looking at North America and, and Europe um, just as a, as a matter of focus. And uh, they go all the way back to the, the early... Uh, well, actually, the later Roman Empire, but AD 377, all the way up to their final one is, the final example is a Soviet coup against Gorbachev in 91, and a little bit of everything in between. There's 16 chapters, and that's really interesting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with them as well, and now that we're close to quarter after, I, I would hope that we will be hearing soon from Katie. So there you go. That's what's coming up. Well, that's really awesome and exciting. I, I had a chance to see Election Day as well, Eric. I actually watched it when I got home from uh, from work today and found it quite fascinating because voting in different parts of the country is apparently very different than voting has been for me for all these years. That's interesting. How so? Well, I... Uh, Voting here seems has always seemed to be fairly straightforward. Um, there are rarely ever lines at the polls. Everything goes very smoothly. Uh, it's just it's not. It doesn't seem sort of you know fraught with am I going to get to vote or am I not going to get to vote the way it did for some of the folks in that film. Yeah, well that's the same with us. We're here in you know suburban Aurora, Ohio. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that. We're in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I've never had a problem. I mean, you know, sure, you plan it out a little bit. You don't want to go at the absolute rush hours of, you know, right before work or right after work. If you avoid those hours, if you go in the middle of the day or or now they're open a lot later than they used to be. Ours around here, I think, are open until 7, and I know in some places they, they go even later. Um, and you know, by the time uh, you're, you're into that last hour or so, there's there's no one around. Um, no, I, I've I don't think I've ever waited. I don't remember waiting here um, since we since I've been in this town, which is now uh, this time around uh, almost uh, well, it's 18 years, so it's a, it's a long time. Several several elections. So I, I know what you mean. I, I think you know for suburban voters. Um, Again, as long as you're not in, uh, you know, stuck going very specifically at rush hour, because, you know, certainly there's plenty of people who have to work a long way away um, from where they live, work in, in the city or whatever. And so, you know, they do have to go either before or after work, and they they can't avoid it. Uh, they can't go in the middle of the day. And you know, so so there there can be some issues and some wait time and whatnot. But but I'm I'm with you. You know, when I see these 
horror stories of people waiting two and three and four hours to vote. It's absurd. It just yeah. seems crazy to me. Yeah, you're right. In in the film, uh, I think it's St. Louis, isn't it, where where yeah. they're people are talking about having having waited two hours already, and there's all kinds of issues. And it's interesting because there's an Australian observer there watching, you know, how it's going at that polling place in St. Louis, and she's she's trying to hide how appalled she is at how poorly yeah. run everything is, and you know, you feel like. Whoa, you know, because we we feel like we're the ones who are always sending out the observers to these third world countries and whatnot. But you know, obviously, we have places that appear to be poorly run and and, and possibly anti-democratic. Uh, you know, to outside observers as well. Exactly. I think too. Um, it it kind of boggles my mind that the the rules are different in place to place because it seems that in a national election you sort of want to have a system in place where the data was collected pretty uniformly. Yes. And yet every state, and I'm sure that within bigger states than Connecticut where I am, towns within states or counties within states probably all do it differently. Well, sure. I, as as we've heard uh, endlessly, you know, certainly dating back to the 2000 election with with what happened in Florida, you know, it's 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 even more fundamental. You know, they have actually physically different methods of people voting, and that to me seems kind of ridiculous. You know, I mean, and, and unfair because obviously, it, just just the technology of it, it. Any, you know, if your physical ballots are different, some are electronic. There's various kinds of electronic. There's there's electronic with paper backup. You know, it, it, it seems almost unlimited as far as the the variation. There's the really old-fashioned, you know, punch, and that's still probably what I'm most used to, the punch, although I, I, we did use the electronic last time I recall. But, you know, the punch, uh, uh, which is, uh, I suppose, semi-mechanical or something. And then older than that, of course, is just some, uh, you know, a, a piece of paper with names and boxes on it. And we, and we saw some of that uh, in the film. I, I was... Uh, Stunned to see that there were some that were that we that have a call. They maybe check Katie. the box. All right, excellent. Katie. All right, so let me. I'm gonna bring her on. Is that you, Katie? Yes. Katie, excellent. Eric Olson, really happy to have you on the show. You're on with Don Olson and Lisa McKay as well. Great. I wanted to make sure I pronounced your last name correctly. Sure. Why don't Seven you years. tell us? <laughs> it's Chevigny. Chevigny. Well, I was close. I yeah. Was I wasn't quite there. So how are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. We were just talking about your film and how uh-huh. how how educational, interesting, evocative, and I, 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 was, I had to literally shut it off in order to get uh, come on the show here at 9, and, and I'd seen about an hour of it, and I, I realized that I had about one minute left until the show, because I just didn't want to turn it off. It was so compelling. It's really terrific. Oh, great. I'm so glad to hear that. That's awesome. So uh, we've been talking about it to a certain extent, but why don't you tell us, maybe just kind of go back to the beginning. We know I know you're a award-winning documentary maker. You've made, this is, what, your seventh, eighth? Yeah, I mean, I've produ- you know, I have a documentary company, uh, and we've made eight films, some of which I've directed and some of which I've produced. And this particular film, Election Day, I directed. 
Ah, okay. Well, it's 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 terrific. Why don't you tell us the genesis of it and the idea behind it, and uh, then maybe, you know we can talk about the the details a bit. Sure. Um, in it basically started in 2004. We kind of came up with the idea in the summer of 2004, and it came from a couple different ideas. Um, first, you know, as documentary filmmakers, we I feel like it's great if we can contribute to some of the pressing issues of the day, if we can contribute to it. And, you know, there was so much attention around the 2000 election and a lot of just talk about the stakes of the 2004 election. And I thought, well, this is something maybe we can find an angle of some, some way to cover this that hasn't already been covered in the mainstream media. Then we'd be like, you know, contributing something, not just covering the same old stuff. And, um, you know, there's so much about the horse race of the, of the I was going to say contestants, like it's a reality show, but the, um, the <laughs> candidates, right. you know, and of course, it's a very dramatic story, and the press covers it a lot, and it sells newspapers to know so-and-so's up by two points in the poll, so-and-so said this goofy thing when they were in St. Louis, you know, that kind of thing. But there wasn't that much attention about the legacy of what had happened in the 2000 election when it comes to the voting process. And, you know, really what the 2000 election was was a wake-up call to mainstream America that our voting process doesn't work as smoothly as some people had imagined. Um, and so we were interested in looking at, you know, how is that sensibility going to affect the polling, the polling places in 2004 and the voters going to the polls? Are they going to be approaching it from a different perspective? That was what we were looking at. That was the idea. Interesting. Well, you certainly achieved that. You um, uh, you had film crews in fourteen locations, right? Right. Yeah, that was the crazy part. Is that we had four, we had fourteen crews who were all shooting on the same day. Like it's one thing to have fourteen crews. That's kind <laughs> of logistically complicated enough. But they were literally all shooting at exactly the same time. So where were was, you? I was with the New York crew, so that I didn't have to you know travel, be out of the office too much, and I could kind of be part of the pre-production process right up until November first. And then I just woke up on November 2nd and met my crew in Harlem, and we followed uh, Leon, who was a ex-felon who was voting for the first time at age 15. Right. Yeah, his story was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very, very compelling. Um, how did you pick the locations? I, I see Chicago. There's the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, South Dakota, Dearborn, Michigan, Cincinnati, Shaker Heights, Orlando, and Quincy, Florida. St. Louis and uh, New York and the little town of Sapulpa, Oklahoma. Oh, and, right. And uh, Stockholm, Wisconsin. Yeah, we, we, you know, I wasn't expecting to choose 14 locations. We really intended to shoot, well, we intended to include many fewer locations, maybe somewhere between like five and eight locations in the final film. But the thing about shooting in this observational style, like cinema verite style, is you don't know what's going to happen in front of the camera. And you may get nothing. You may have a total dud. Um, and we only have the one day to shoot. So it's not like you can say, well, the guy might warm up tomorrow. We can film it on November 3rd. It has to happen <laughs> on the point. 2nd. So we had to really hedge our bets, which is partly why we had so many crews. We were kind of anticipating that a third to a half of the crews might come back with basically zilch from a filmmaking standpoint. Um, but really, we got a lot more interesting locations than we thought, and so we ended up making a film that included 11 of the locations. Um, uh. What we were looking for was variety, um, interesting stories, things that you hadn't seen already covered in the media a lot, um, unusual twists on things, um, things that would be visually interesting, and, and in particular things that would show how varied the experience is of Election Day for different Americans in different places. 
Well, I think you certainly achieved that. Why don't, why don't you walk us through, you know, the one of those stories? Uh, does anyone come to mind that uh, is particularly emblematic of the film? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple. I mean, one there's a couple I'm fond of. I mean, one interesting one is uh, in St. Louis, we followed an international monitor, a woman named Shanta Martin from Australia. Yes. Uh, and that one, you know, and when you ask, like, how do we pick the locations, we did a bunch of research and talked to a lot of people who knew more about what was going on, what the hot spots were, what the interesting stories were um, for this year's election, that year's election in 2004. And one of the nonprofits we talked to said, you know, there's this group called Fair Elections International that has studied elections all over the globe, and for the first time ever, they're going to come and examine U.S. elections. That was basically like our punishment for the 2000 election. You know, was that <laughs> foreigners were going to come. You know, we didn't play very well in 2000, so somebody had to come and check us out. And I thought that was like quite interesting. It's a sort of turn on the, you know, here we are always priding ourselves on having a democracy, and we export, quote, unquote, our democracy to other countries. And here comes this Australian woman to see whether we're really, you know, if to our democracy. Keep an eye on us. Yeah, to see if our democracy it holds up to international standards. So I thought that was fascinating. And what I really liked about her as a character is that I kind of felt like she was a little bit the conscience of the film and a little bit also represented um, the viewer, you know, the, that right. she's looking at the system and she's very quiet. She's got, you know, she's, she's obviously being very focused in her, in her, um, in the way she's watching the polls and what's right. going on in the polling places, but she's not talking a lot. She's just kind of taking it all in. And so I kind of saw her as a stand-in for the viewer. Like what she's seeing is what we're seeing. But when you see somebody else watching it, particularly the craziness that was happening in St. Louis with the great disparity in access to the polls that she saw between poor neighborhoods and wealthy neighborhoods, right? Um, I, think it, I think it makes you feel differently about it where, you know, I look at it as a viewer and I'm like, wow, that's a really crappy situation. And then I see, you know, a foreigner watching us and then there's a little a different reaction where I, I think I feel a little bit of kind of like shame or embarrassment or something like that to know that somebody else is judging us so I, that one I thought was particularly interesting from a film standpoint uh, I agree I agree we in fact we were talking just we were talking just about that Lisa and I because Lisa saw it today too Lisa feel free to to please jump in and uh, and uh, grill our guest yeah <laughs> One of the things I was wondering is, I know that the, the, there are a whole bunch of like rules and regulations about what you can and can't do in a polling place. How hard was it to get permission to film in high polling places all over the country? Oh, yeah. No, that's a good question, actually. That was one of the major behind-the-scenes challenges for us, um, and I actually like to talk about it because um, it was one of the kind of – well, anyway, I'll just tell the story. Um, we had uh, <laughs> um, we you know we had these fantastic producers who were doing this massive logistical work in advance of the election day, which were Maggie Bowman and Dallas Brennan Rexer, and Maggie was being really thorough at trying to get official permission from all the different election commissions in the different states and localities we were filming in, and you know she got varying. We have this incredibly decentralized system, so some people were like, sure, no problem. Here's the form. I'll fax it to you. Sign it. Fax it back. Then there's places like Florida where there's a statewide rule that nobody can film in polling places, which I find ironic after what happened in 2000. And then, and then there's other places where they, they, you know, they just are non-responsive and you don't know. And so when I was talking to all the crews, because I did a lot of advanced conversations with the crews to try to get us all on the same page of the spirit and the approach with which we were going to tackle this subject matter, um, you know, one of the things I said to the crews was, 
whether or not you have the piece of paper with you or the official permission, um, you know, try to get in the polls anyway because there's like some freedom of speech on our side here. Um, you know, this is a public event. It's as long as you're not like invading anybody's personal privacy with the vote they're casting, and as long as you're not obstructing people's ability to vote, um, there's, in my opinion, <laughs> no particular reason why we shouldn't be able to document this process. It should be as transparent as possible. So I, I would I encourage the crews to be a little pushy on that point, which you don't do for every subject, but for this, I was like really try to push the envelope. So we did a little bit of kind of. Bullying would be too strong a word, but we did, you know, we were a little bit aggressive about trying to get into the polling places. And generally, you know, you can walk into a polling place and you can kind of flash an ID and people think you're legit and you can film. And so we actually were able to film in a lot more polling places than we had official permission to film in. But it was, it was really quite, and in some places the cameras were thrown out. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor of people saying turn that camera off that we didn't include in the film. Yeah, I remember the guy and uh, the poll watcher in Chicago, who who your yeah. guy, the guy you were following, was was suspicious of, and he said, "I don't, I don't want to be filmed. I don't, want, I don't want to be recorded." I think he said. I don't want to be taped. Yeah. Taped? Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, he looks right in the camera lens and says, "I don't want to be taped." Um, yeah, and we included that. You know, it was interesting because we were when we were when you're editing a film, you include a lot of things that you're going to cut out later. You know, and we put that in at the beginning, and um, one of my producers said to me, "You're going to take that out, right?" And uh, when he turns to the camera and says that, and I was like, I don't know. I mean, we'll wait and see. And then we kept cutting down and cutting down, and that scene stayed in the film, and he said that. And finally I said, I want to leave it in for a couple of reasons. One, it's provocative that we, that we filmed that. And secondly, I want people to know that not everybody was happy about having the cameras there. Sure. You know, kind of like be transparent about that fact as well, that not everybody wants their business shown to the public. Kind of a, um, and, a reflexive approach almost where, you know, you're watching them, but they're watching you, and you're reflecting that they're watching you. Yeah, right, as opposed to that whole kind of, I think, kind of fake, fake slash objective, quote-unquote, idea that you're, you know, that the camera's not changing what's going on. You know, of course, our presence has an effect on what's happening there. Yes. Uh, I, I would say we have learned that through the, the reality television process. Yeah, no kidding, right. <laughs> but yours is real reality. Mine's real reality, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Even if you did alter uh, the world around you uh, via the uh, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? That's right, exactly, right. You, you, you can't we didn't actually ask anybody to do something they weren't going to do. I mean, it's a, it's a delicate balance, you know. Like for example, I mean, it's interesting. Different people have different styles with this observational documentary style, but. You know, you don't want to push, but occasionally you make a suggestion so, or an encouragement. So, for example, we were following um, Leon Batts over the course of the day. And he, in the morning, he went and talked to Jazz Hayden, and that scene we included in the film. And then he went and hung out with his family, and then he cast his vote and had some problems doing that, and we included that in the film. And then we got back in his car, and he was like, turned to me and the crew, and he was like, okay, so now what, guys? It was like the early afternoon, and I was like, well, what would you normally do today? We're just supposed to follow you doing whatever you do. And he was like, well, I think I'd go home and take a nap. <laughs> and I was like, um, is there any alternate possibility? Is there anything else you might Something do? Something more cinematic. Yeah, and then he said, well, I might, the other thing I might do is go hang out at the barbershop. And I was like, now we're talking. That's uh, something we can film, you know. So I don't know if you saw that scene or not, but there's a great scene in the barbershop. So. Yeah, I did. I did. Lisa, that was a great question. Please go on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, no, actually, uh, the other thing I wanted to know was um, – I thought you did a, a, a very good job of presenting, you know, really kind of a spectrum of not just experience but political opinion without having the political opinions necessarily stated, you know.
people in the film did a pretty good job of, especially with the uh, the factory workers, did a great job of just sort of expressing, I think, a lot of the stuff that people were kind of feeling about that election. Did you come away from this whole process thinking anything or knowing anything about the whole electoral process that you, you might not have suspected going into it? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was really interesting, the different things we took from it. I mean, one... One thing I felt um, in watching it, in watching the footage was that we really don't have full enfranchisement of the electorate in this country, which in some ways isn't it's kind of obvious, but in another way it's sort of a radical thing to say because people don't say that very often. But um, but there really are effectively people being kept from having their full right to vote, you know, groups and of uh, groups of people, right, and all over the country in different places. And some people, their access to the polls is so much greater than other people's that it effectively is a form of disenfranchisement. But for some weird reason, people aren't up in arms about that, um, which is still kind of a mystery to me. I think maybe the issue's time has not quite come, although you would have thought 2000 would have pushed us over the edge. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes people in, in other countries say things like, I was just talking to somebody from South Africa recently, and they were like, your country's so interesting that there wasn't massive rebellion after the 2000 election. And I was like, yeah, that's that's America for you. <laughs> we really believe in our democracy. <laughs> you know, we don't do coup d'etats here. Um, but so that was one thing is that I really feel like a strong feeling of this is a this is a critical problem that we need to put our attention to this lack of full enfranchisement. And then the other thing that I felt is sort of a, a little bit of a um, more optimistic feeling, which is, you know, I, I feel like I was effectively kind of spun by the pundits about the whole apathy of the American voter that were, you know, you always see in the media, they're bemoaning the fact that American voters don't care and that's why voter turnout is so low, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like in so many locations, the footage we got back, what we saw represented was the absolute opposite, opposite of apathy, like people just going so the extra mile to have their vote count or to have somebody else's vote count, you know, volunteering to drive people to the polls, volunteering to stay late, get there early, you know, facilitate people's ability to vote. Um, and, it, you know, particularly in St. Louis, there's that shot that just kind of blew my mind when we were looking at the raw footage of this long line going out the polling place, and it's very cold and a little bit rainy outside, and it's already been established that the people inside the gym have been waiting for two hours, so the people at the end of the line, you're thinking it's two and a half, three hours for them. And there's this old woman at the end of the line who's just getting started for her two and a half hour wait, you know, and her, her granddaughter pulls her hat off her head and puts it on her own head, and the grandma pulls her hood up. And when I saw that, I was just thinking, like, what in the world is wrong with this system? And why, you know, you think about all the people who stay home and what a completely rational decision that is under those circumstances. If you're an 85-year-old woman, you're going to stand in the cold for three hours? You know, and th that's called apathy? It's not, it's not apathy. Anyway, so I get up, and now I'm all ranting about that. But that's something that I really felt afterwards. That I don't know why we're blaming the voter for their, like, complete justified frustration with trying to go to the polls, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I agree. The film really makes the point. Uh, there was a younger woman, I think it was St. Louis, and she had already found out uh, after I'm sure she waited a long time that, that that was not her right polling place. And she said, you know, I'm going to go wherever I have to go. Uh, this is too important to me. I'm going to vote. My voice will be heard. This affects my children, you know, the life of my children. And that really hit me. Uh, yeah. Lisa and I were talking before you came on uh, and saying – you know, our process, our voting process, we're both in, you know, relatively affluent uh, suburban areas. 
and we've never had any problems voting. You know, I mean, basically, no wait in line. You know where to go. There's no issues. They smile. They know. You know. I mean, when I go, they know me. They know who I am. You know, I, I send me yeah. to the right line, and and uh, I mean, they know my family, and you know, ask about my brothers or who, you know, whatever. And and it's it's a very simple, non-threatening. Um, does not take a lot of time. You're talking about me driving uh, oh, well under five minutes, you know, two, three minutes to get to the polling place. It's never changed the whole time I've lived here, which is 18 years, same spot. And it, it's it's an entirely different – it's not just a difference of, of degree. It's a difference in kind of, yeah, of my voting right. experience. Well, that's the distinction. Some people think it's just a difference of degree, but thinking of it as a difference in kind is is the rub, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, waiting waiting in line for four hours is actually non-negotiable for some people. I mean, four hours is extreme, even an hour and a half. I mean, for people who have busy working lives, and you know, there's there's a whole movement actually called Why Tuesday, that's kind of asking the question: A, why do we have election day on a work day, and B, why do we have it just on one day? which, you know, is starting a change in many locations. But, you know, if you're, what if you're sick that day? What if, you're, what if your older, elderly mom that you're caring for is sick that day and you can't leave? Then you don't get to vote? How is that protection of your, you know? Well, there is the whole absentee voting thing. I think that's easier than it used to be. My parents do that now, and, and they're not necessarily gone. You know, they are gone a lot, but, but they do it even when they're not out of town. Right, which in some states you can't do it unless you're actually, yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's, it's gonna, hopefully that will change more. Um, but, you know, part of the other thing I wanted to do with the film was not just get into the kind of <clears throat> arcane details of the voting process and the mechanics of it, partly because I didn't think that was going to really hold people's attention for a set of time. Because, you know, people start to glaze over really quickly when you start talking about, the you know, 4,600 different voting systems across the U.S. and percentages of people disenfranchised. You know, pretty soon you're not watching a movie anymore. Um, so another one of the things that made it interesting to me was just trying to convey something about where we are as a country from a, you know, just almost like just documenting this place and time for America um, in a way that, you know, years from now, we might wonder, like, what was life like in 2004? And this is kind of like one little snapshot of a variety of different Americans' experience of a daily life. So that was another thing that I thought, you know, wasn't just voting process about it. Yeah, I love I love that you know that day in the life approach. You know, there's a book. Remember the book about I don't know, maybe it's been a long time now, but it, it was just that it was you know a day in the life of America. I think that one was. And yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to have that kind of pointillist, that microcosm point of view, because when you add it all up, it, it really does give you a a legitimate and you know. It's never going to be complete, obviously, but I mean, it really does give you at least the flavor and probably the parameters of, of what was going on at that time. What are the main issues? And I, I think uh, I think it achieves that really well. As always, when when we have these terrific conversations and interesting topics, we are we are we are burning through time. And I just realized we haven't really given any information about how our listeners can uh, check this out. And it will be airing Election Day. The film will be airing. July 1st on PBS. That's Tuesday, July 1st. And uh, consult your, as they say, consult your local channel for the time. Uh, I, I believe it's is, is 9 the standard time. I'm not sure. Here, I'm looking it's uh, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 10 Eastern. Okay. 
So PBS on on Tuesday, and this is in the uh, the POV series, right? Part of the POV series, and also uh, we got websites here. We have the POV site, and that's at www.pbs.org/pov, and then you'll you'll find uh, the link to the election day show, and then the election day film has its own site as well. That's election day the movie. Dot com. There's lots of interesting information, there's pictures, there's press information, news, and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I, I saw about an hour of it. Uh, Lisa saw the whole thing. How did you see it today, Lisa? Uh, how do you mean? I mean, what in what form did you... Oh, I have, I have a screener. Oh, you have a screener? Because <laughs> well, I'm special. How foolish of me. Okay, well, there you go. I do, too. Uh, uh, you you planned better and saw all of yours, and I only saw an hour of mine. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I'm I'm fascinated. I'm, I can't wait to get off the radio and see the last half hour. See how it see how it turns yeah, out. There's, but it, there's some dramatic stuff in the last half hour, right, Lisa? That he missed. <laughs> it's the the. I'm not even going to say what it is because it'll just give it away. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, so, I'm I'm fine. very interested, especially those local elections, to see how it come out. Can't, Comes out the write-in guy in Cincinnati. I want to see what happens with him. I, my, my, a lot of my relatives on my mother's side are from South Dakota, so I'm, I'm was particularly interested in the Indian reservation there. And there's some interesting theorizing going on. You know, should they vote? Should they bother? And uh, you know, kind of back and forth on that, uh, on the importance to them. And uh, I remember a rather profound thought about you know, yeah, uh, the the candidates. They all love us now, but the day after the election, it's you know it's back to business as usual. Yeah, right. A lot of people feel that way, of course. And they're uh, probably not all wrong. Um, sorry to yeah. interrupt. We ha- we have a two one two call on the switchboard, so I was just letting you know. All right. Well, um, you can certainly bring them in as we wrap up, Katie. But anyway, thanks so much for coming on, Katie. It was really great. And Lisa, that was, thank you so much for participating. Really great questions. I'm I'm delighted you were able to see. The film because you you brought a lot to it that I was unaware of or wouldn't have thought of so that worked out extremely well so good luck with it and uh, Thank it looks you. Like it's doing exceptionally well uh, you're getting uh, all kinds of film festival recognition it appears and awards and encomiums and all kinds of wonderfulness and it is well deserved <laughs> oh thanks thanks so much it's really great talking to you great talking to you too went really quickly and uh, you have to come on. Uh, and tell us about the next movie. Yeah, sure, anytime. Just let Are me know. Are you working on something? Um, yeah, our, our, our company is making a film now about um, some Congolese refugees. It's a mother and daughter story. They were separated for 12 years and just reunited last year in the United States. Ah, well, I'm sure that is powerful as well. You certainly yeah. have, a, uh, you have a sense, you have, you have a knack for that. So again, Election Day, and it's July 1st, 10 p.m. Eastern on PBS. And it, well worth watching. Really interesting inside look into the American electoral process. Thanks. Thank you, Katie. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. Farewell. Okay, Don. Okay. Do we have do you we want have Anne an or Michael? Yes. Yes. Are you together? Yes. <laughs> Do you each have your own phones or different phone lines or, or is it like Siamese phones? Or? No, it's my house phone. It's two extensions. Okay. I, I am joking with you. Uh, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, uh, you know, 
really great book. I, I actually read a bit more of this than, than most of the ones that I'm, I'm able to get to. I, there's never any time before we have people on to actually read the whole book. But uh, this one is super well written. It's, it's funny. It's thought provoking. It's it's really great, and I, I I hope it's doing really well for you. The name of the book is Stupid Wars: A Citizen Citizen's Guide to Botched Putsches, Failed Coups, Inane Invasions, and Ridiculous Revolutions. And we have both authors with us, Ed Strasser and Michael Prince. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, for those who have not read the book, which is, by the way, on uh, Collins, uh, it's a uh, division of Harper Collins. And when did the book come out? April. In April. So it's it's been out for a little while, but it's still mm-hmm. still relatively new. You getting uh, good reviews on it? We've got a couple reviews. It's tough to get reviews, you know. Uh, we're waiting for that big front page New York Times review. But uh, the Armchair General is a you know a military history magazine. They loved it, and uh, you know we've we've done a bunch of radio interviews, and so we've gotten great feedback from that. So. We're hoping there'll be more reviews, you know, coming out. But yeah, I think the radio, you know, the, the the radio, and of course we're internet radio. Yep. It, it is a really good uh, approach because you know you guys can you, your your personalities, you can chat, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, with these days with the newspapers, uh, part of you know why we do well on Blog Critics, the site, the website, because we certainly cover books. You know, the, the the newspapers throughout the country just keep slashing their book review sections. Yeah, I think that's the way it's going with newspapers. Um, so, so tell us how, how the book came about. I know you guys, uh, what, you met in school, did you? You met in college? Yeah, we met at Boston University, our um, first day of school that we met in history class, and we started talking about history and really has barely stopped since then. And like most great ideas, we were in a bar one day a few years, a few years ago talking about the the U.S. invasion of the Soviet Union. I was reading a book which was discussing it. I was reading a book, a separate book, which was discussing it. And we just kind of slapped on this idea of the, the invasion was probably... There, you just got much louder. Whatever you just did, please do that. So, and we just kind there. of realized yes, that one. this was one of the stupidest military adventures we've ever heard of, that the United States tried to overthrow the communists by putting a few thousand troops in, in Vladivostok. <laughs> and that... So we started talking, and then the idea just, just evolved very quickly that it was you – know, we could do a list of all these really ridiculous wars and how funny they were. And we quickly you know, sold the idea, and we, and we wrote it up. And one of our concerns going into it was really, really be able to find so many failed wars, so many of these with good details and, and funny, humorous stuff about it. And we found more than enough. We had to you know, actually take chapters out of the book because it was running so long. And so it's just—it's really kind of history with an attitude. We tell stories of each chapter of each of each of these wars and coups, with lots of funny details. But it's—it's it's in many ways a very serious book. It's a book about about the failure of these leaders to really uh, understand what they were getting into when they started these wars and these revolutions, and how they all miserably failed for you know, various reasons. Yes, <laughs> they certainly did, and there is a lot of humor in there, but. You know, obviously the greater context is we're talking about you know, some of the worst tragedies in in human history. Uh, but uh, I mean, look, black humor. If you if you can't if you can't laugh, uh, it, it it I guess you're stuck with crying. 
Um, let's. I'm. I'm gonna just run through really super quick, just just the table of contents, just so, to give people a sense of of uh, you know what you covered, and then maybe if you guys want to just go from there, pick out you know just one or two or however many you would care to elaborate on, and and to just give us a, an example, you know, uh, based on that. But you go back to Valens and the end of the Roman Empire, and that's in. Uh, Eighty-three seventy-seven, the Fourth Crusade. Ooh, that's a, that's a brutal one. The Whiskey Rebellion one. of uh, seventeen ninety-four. The War of the Triple Alliance, sixteen or eighteen sixty-five. War of the Pacific, eighteen seventy-nine. That was invasion. the War of the Bird Poop. The War of the Pacific. And the that War was... of the Bird Poop. All right. Well, may, perhaps rather than me just reading through them, which is probably pretty stupid, let's uh, you know why don't you guys elaborate? All right, let's talk about the War of the Pacific of eighteen seventy-nine because man, everyone loves bird poop. This was a war started over mountains of bird poop along the Pacific coast in South America between Chile, Bolivia, and Peru. Chile was um, trying to dominate the, the whole bird poop market. And <laughs> Is that called guano? It's called, in the trade, yes. it's called guano. Okay. And, and bat, bat poop, too, right? Yeah. Mostly birds, though. Birds are the good stuff. Okay. And so there was mountains of it down there. And... It was like their most valuable resource they had, which kind of gives you a little hint of their of their life. <laughs> but the, some of the funny things out of it, they started this war in Bolivia and Peru teamed up together, and they got crushed by the Chileans. And it's kind of you know, this, the hilarity, some of the hilarious moments are that Bolivia back then had a coastline, which they then lost in the war. Chile grabbed it. But they had no navy back then. Now they have no coast, but they do have a navy with admirals. And... <laughs> And they have a holiday every year where they, they how perverse. Uh, yeah, they have a holiday where they get together and uh, basically uh, have a parade in honor of you know losing the coastline. And the admirals show up and they basically re reaffirm their commitment to getting their coastline back someday. <laughs> and it wasn't so, it wasn't our fault. <laughs> well, exactly. And the odd thing is now that the again this bird poop is becoming more valuable because these nitrates are in it so as resources become scarce you know the bird poop market gets higher and now we're in a time actually when the bird poop market is high again and so we, you know we have the uh the Chileans and the um and the Bolivians are yeah they're down there making noises again that they, oh, you know, no. they want to yeah because there are islands now with bird poop and they you know the the uh, Chileans want to guard the islands and make sure the Bolivians don't get greedy and try to make a you know, a run for the islands. So, so you could call that guano belligerence. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's back up because that Fourth Crusade, man, that's a that's a doozy. They they, they, they kind of lost track of the idea along the way. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. When you start numbering crusades like Super Bowls, you know you got a problem. The Fourth <laughs> Crusade, they uh, they they started off with the purest of intentions to go and, and kill lots of Muslims in uh, in the Holy Land. And they ended up raping, pillaging, and burning Constantinople, which was the biggest, the most famous, and richest Christian city in the world. Oops. And oops. That was oops. That's a double oops. And it was so bad that the Pope had to apologize for it. In but, 2002, he finally apologized. Yeah. It's like Almost years. a thousand years later. Like well, years. he got around to it, you know. It was tweaking it. He was tweaking the language for a few hundred years. It worked its way through the Vatican bureaucracy, but finally the papal... Uh, <laughs> Papal apology was issued. A papal bull, no doubt. Papal bull, exactly. <laughs> so one of the I've never understood we... that term, but it certainly sounds good. Yeah, exactly. 
So uh, one of the things we've learned, though, is that a war, a stupid war by definition is one that is very hard to end or never ends. And so, uh, you know, a lot of these wars still have things happen, like things happen today that that can be traced back to these wars. And obviously with the current war, uh, we're still winning it five years later. So, you know, you have to sort of, uh, you know, read into that situation. Well, now, seriously, what pair, what, what? Of of the previous wars or what you covered, what does most closely parallel uh, our, our current uh, current situation uh, invasion or our, our, our visit to Iraq? I don't know. I guess maybe the uh, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, it just kind of went on and on and on. Even though you know there isn't uh, as many casualties on our side as the Russians took from the Afghani's uh, because they did a full scale old style invasion. Uh, you know, and they really took it on the chin from the Afghanis. Um, I don't know what. It's hard to say what exactly. You know, what, what, the. I imagine there are political aspects that you, you would have to agree upon. You know, it's, I'm, and I'm sure it's much harder to look at something that's going on. You know, I mean, it's not really history while it's going on. I suppose it's, you know, yeah, current history. We don't cover it in the book. We're, uh, you know, we're still waiting for the big finish there to make it history. But there were there were some. Some parallels between uh, each of them in many ways, and what's going on in Iraq. You kind of, you kind of read it and realize, oh man, that's that's it does have a familiar ring to it. What's happening today? And you know, as they say, history doesn't history doesn't really repeat itself, but it kind of you know, trickles down through analogy. And that's what we noticed. So, like even like the Word Group War, Chile occupied the Peruvian capital Lima for over three years, and it started just as it was this huge disagreement within Chile, and basically tore the Chilean the Chilean government apart, what to do with Peru. How do, you, how do you occupy a country and how do you get out and when do you, at what point do you declare it to be, to be done occupying and leave? And they didn't know what to do, Chile. How do you, how did they ex- get themselves out of Peru? They finally, they found someone who was willing to sign a, a surrender agreement. They were like, what, you know, digging around and trying to find anybody who would agree to surrender to them. <laughs> yeah, we give up. Exactly. They found some guys who said, yeah, we're going to give up. And then they say, okay, we have the document signed, let's go. And they pulled out and left. Let's tail it out of here. Well, well, why don't we stick with that same part of the world uh, and move up to the Falkland Islands War, uh, which has always struck me as just utterly bizarre. You know, I mean, here we are in the modern world, you know, 1982. What the heck is Britain doing fighting? It was Argentina, wasn't it? Exactly. Argentina was, you know, nursing, uh, basically nursing uh, an argument which had happened 150 years before when they blamed the British for taking over. And so 150 years later, they made their move, and basically there was a junta running Argentina, and they wanted to score some easy PR points and, you know, take over the island. Little did they know Maggie Thatcher was going to fight for the crumbs of the empire, and she sends down this huge armada uh, to take over. Now, the crazy thing is they almost, the British almost lost this battle because of these French Exocet missiles, which the Argentinians were shooting at their ships. They sunk six big British ships. Oh, my. And... They almost they almost blew the thing, uh, and basically it was it was a stupid war because of the total failure of diplomacy. I mean, to fight a war over a useless piece of land, I mean there were more sheep than people on the island. Um, it was just it was a, something you wouldn't expect to happen in this day and age, but it did. And Especially for the Brits, man, they're supposed to be all smart and stuff. Yeah, another part about the war, yep. well, they, they invented radio to the British, but they didn't actually use it during the war. They kind of they kind of left that turned the radar set off. But the funny thing about it was, was we, we kind of realized that wars are started by people. 
not by political systems, not by any kind of economic conflict. One day, the guy in charge of Argentina decided, this, we're going to take the Falklands. And Maggie Thatcher, instead of negotiating some kind of graceful exit or something, decided to, to mount the biggest armada basically in British history almost. And so wars were started by people. Now, there was no disagreement between Britain and Argentina. Argentina was a good friend of the United States. Britain was a good friend of the United States. So we're kind of, the U.S. Was, was stuck between having two friends fight each other. And they had no real, they were both, in many ways, very similar countries. And so there was no reason for them to ever fight a war. And yet they did, and it was, it was pretty bad. And Argentina still, like Bolivia, they still want to go back and take the Falklands. And the British have a huge garrison of troops down there to keep them, to keep them quiet. But it's not over. They're going to go back one day. They waited 150 years before, and they're very patient down there. They'll wait another 150 years. Yeah, you know, they got their watches on. Yeah, we got, uh, <laughs> all right, we've put in about 25 years now, and we only got 75 to go. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it'll still be there. Oh, that's interesting stuff. Well, uh, it looks like you got the U.S. in here three times. I see Grenada in '83. I see Bay of Pigs in '61, and I see the U.S. invasion of Russia. I, right. I don't think I even knew about that in that's, 1918. That's the story that got the book started. We, I had never heard of it. Mike had never heard of it, and we discovered that story. We're like, whoa, what is this? And it's true. It, towards the end of World War One. The uh, British and French were putting pressure on us and uh, the other allies to reopen the Eastern Front, which if you know anything about the World War I, it's kind of a ridiculous idea since the Russians had basically quit World War One, And so they and, and invaded Russia through Vladivostok, which is about 5,000 miles from Moscow and what would have been the Eastern Front. And basically they ended up... the far Eastern Front they were trying to create there. Yeah, it was the far, far Eastern Front. And basically their orders were... (laughs) The other side of the world. Other side of the world. And the orders were basically invade and do nothing. Invade but don't cause trouble. And so the general, the U.S. general figured this out, and he tried to keep his soldiers out of trouble and, you you know, keep them in the bars and brothels. And meanwhile, you had Cossacks and the red, the red communists and the white Russians and the Japanese and a lot of other people trying to shoot each other over there, and the Americans were literally just trying to stay out of the way. Right. And so that was the, you know, a, a, that was the story that started it, this whole book for us. And it's just an incredible tale. And the Russians still remember this. Of course, no one remembers it here because it just got buried in the history books. Wow. How many people were involved? I mean, how many U.S. soldiers? Five were to ten thousand U.S. soldiers. Wow. They well, they're lucky so- they were being low key, I guess, huh? Yeah, they they still lost a couple hundred guys, uh, and you know they they got a little bit of equipment back. The the main thing they did was help this lost Czech legion of soldiers who went from uh, it, they were inside Russia and they escaped down the Trans Siberian Railroad with some of the the Tsar's gold in tow, and uh, they eventually made it out and with with some of the gold. And that was basically the main accomplishment, helping these uh, Czech soldiers get out of Russia. Uh, when the uh, Russian Revolution happened, just, just I can't an incredible believe, story. I can't believe there hasn't been a movie made about that. Yeah, we're we're trying to get one made, but if you know anybody, let us <laughs> put in contact with us because we have a whole script written about the about the craziness of trying to fight, trying to not fight a war in the middle of a war, which is what they were. Which well, was. look, I mean, I didn't know about that. Great minds think alike, there, huh? <laughs> sure. That's probably a good sign that I thought of that too. <laughs> Uh, well, sure, absolutely. We we know some people. We we all right. interview all kinds of interesting people here. Any you producers know. are out there. 
And we had big, a filmmaker on right before you guys. Yeah, yeah we, right. We heard that. And the big finish for the Americans was they left with 88 brides. Whoa. Got so that was the foodies. beginning of the whole Russian bride movement? That was it. <laughs> the original Russian brides, exactly. And, and now was, you know the rest of the story. And now you know the rest of the story. Well, this is great stuff. I'm looking at the clock. I, uh, as, I, as I always say, whenever we have these you know, real interesting, fascinating, in fact, conversations, the time just flies, and we are bumping right up against our, uh, our hour deadline. Where are we exactly, Don? We are at nine seconds. Oh, well, we really are near the end. So let's uh, remind everyone the book is Stupid Wars, A Citizen's Guide to Botched Pooches, Failed Coups, Inane Invasions, and Ridiculous Revolutions by Ed Strasser and Michael Prince. And they have a screenplay as well <laughs> waiting to go for, uh, for a film about the 1918 U.S. invasion of Russia. And, man, that's a... Don't cause trouble. It makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, it really does sound cinematic to me. So thanks a lot, guys, and, and best you. best of luck with the book. It's really really well done. As I said, it's witty, it's interesting, it's well written, it's informative, and and I really hope it does super well for you. Thanks again. Check it out at stupidwars.com. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did, I didn't mention the site. Sorry, stupidwars.com. Yes, yep. of course. Check it out there, and I'm sure that people can communicate with you via the site. Okay, super. Well, thanks a lot, Don and Lisa. Great time. Went really quickly, and uh, very much appreciate your input. Don, you were strangely reticent. Well, you know, I'm I'm only manning the boards. I I leave the the hard stuff, stuff to the pros. Uh, well, also you just you didn't have access to the material is all it comes I down didn't, to. I didn't, which makes me very <laughs> sad. It was all very interesting and really cool though. Yeah, it what really was. Really, it, it really was. It, I uh I learned an awful lot and and it's always fun to talk about things that are well done and election day film is, is very well done, really interesting and I really enjoyed uh you know what I what I read and skimmed of <laughs> Stupid Wars too. So thanks a lot, Lisa. Really appreciate your participation. See how easy it was and how well you did? Oh yeah, it was fun. Absolutely. It's just it's just like blabbing with people. It's well that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. No, seriously, that that was great. Your input was was exactly what we needed and I appreciate it very much. And my input was exactly what you needed, which was none. Well, someone had to to run the show, so I don't have to worry about sure. that stuff, you know. My hands are free, and my mind can roam far and wide and all that good stuff. Uh, so, anyway, thanks to both of you, and I uh, imagine perhaps Philip will be back to join us next week. But we're here, of course, every Wednesday evening at 9 o'clock, and it's BC Radio Live. Lots of other things going on. looks like we will have two more interviews yet again tomorrow. I know Don doesn't want to have to be involved, and I don't think she'll have to be. I hope she won't. I uh, hope Sean will be back on Blog Talk Radio today. But it looks like we have we have two more coming up tomorrow uh, at, in the three o'clock hour. That's Eastern time. So we'll but we'll we'll worry about that tomorrow. But uh, you know, check out Blog Talk Radio today every day between two and four with host Sean Daly, or often lately, uh, Don and I have been guest hosting. Because in the last two days, Sean was off uh, meeting with Barack Obama and John McCain. Man, it doesn't get much more impressive than that. Uh, that that's a pretty that's a pretty heavy two-day schedule there.
to meet with those two. So uh, we were real happy to be able to fill in a bit and do some interesting interviews. And uh, we will we will be carrying on. So have a good evening, everyone. <laughs>